Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. The leading cause of disability in the United States is neuropsychiatric disorders like autism, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and neurodegenerative diseases. While these disorders affect millions of people worldwide, there is still much to be learned about treatments. So today, to talk more about neuropsychiatric disorders and possible interventions, I'm joined by Dr. Hector de Jesus Cortez. Dr. de Jesus Cortez is a postdoctoral fellow in the Picower Institute for Learning and Memory at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. As a member of the Bear Lab, he studies the physiology of synaptic plasticity and how experience and pharmacological treatments can impact this process. He is also the director of the Sagrado MIT Neuroscience Pre-College Program, a summer internship and mentoring program designed for high school students in grades 9, 10, and 11 who are interested in pursuing a career in science, technology, engineering, and or math with a focus in neuroscience. Welcome, Dr. Hector de Jesus Cortez. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. Thank you, Sina. Thank you for the great introduction. I'm very, very happy to be here with you today. Yes, I was so excited. We got connected via Twitter. So that's the, that's the positive side of social media. We get to meet really awesome researchers and just great people. And once I learned about your research, I was like, I have to have him on the show because this is such an important topic. So millions of people um, around the world um, are affected by neuropsychiatric disorders, the leading cause of disability in the U.S., and something, honestly, I never really thought about um, a lot, even though, you know, I know people who are, you know, on the autism spectrum or might have some of these other disorders. Um, so it's so great to have you. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of start us out by telling us just a little bit more about like what neuropsychiatric disorders are. Yeah, so neuropsychiatric disorders are a family of, you know, diseases that really have to do with the brain, you know, and, and also the uh, spinal cord and other parts of the uh, central nervous system. And importantly, you know, what we know about them, it's very little. We know many of them have uh, names, like you mentioned, autism spectrum disorders. We have Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, um, because we see a lot of behavioral changes in people. Um, but the underlying mechanisms of how is it that they, in the brain, uh, at the molecular level behave are very, very uh, in the early stages. And that's the reason why we don't have a lot of treatment for them. So now the biggest problem in neuropsychiatric disorders is, is that we um, don't have treatments that go to the root of the problem. We only treat basically the symptoms. Um, so, you know, under this umbrella of neuropsychiatric disorders, are, there are a lot of different um, diseases, but in, in reality, we, every day we can uh, learn and discover new ones. 
Mm, yes. Now, before we start talking about some of the possible treatments, I'm wondering, um, are neuropsychiatric disorders, are they becoming more prevalent or are we just becoming better at maybe detecting them and, and maybe diagnosing them? That's a great question. Uh, I think it's both. So one of the things that characterize some of the neuropsychiatric neuro, uh, disorders is age. So uh, the aging is a process that is normal, but as we became really, really good at other organs, you know, protecting other organs, we know more about, you know, nutrition, exercise, people are living longer. And therefore we are seeing uh, more neuropsychiatric disorders emerge. But additionally, we also have better tools to detect them early um, or detect them at all because in the past we couldn't. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit of both. And what we are seeing is that the, the trend is that it's gonna be become really, really prevalent uh, even though it is right now, it's going to become even more in the future. Mm, okay. So even more prevalent. So it's really good that researchers like yourself and other folks that you work with are starting to learn more, um, and being able to do more types of, I guess, maybe testing or find potential new treatments. So I want to get into some of that because your research, um, is really amazing because when I think about these disorders, again, I'm, I think that probably all of us know someone uh, maybe within our families or just kind of immediate circles who um, has one of these disorders. And so to think that you and other researchers might be able to find the, the root cause, right? Versus just the symptoms is really exciting. So in one of your, I guess, studies, I saw that you were finding some potential maybe breakthroughs around Rett syndrome. And I wanted to start there if that's okay with you because um, I was not familiar with Rett syndrome. Um, this uh, genetic neurological disorder that's primarily in girls. And I was really interested to find out that it is not, you know, it's not inherited, but it is just a, a unique neurological disorder, a type of autism, um, but that it seems like there's not many treatments, I guess, right now for understanding, mm -hmm. you know, what is at the root. So could you tell us a little bit about your research as it applies to Rett syndrome? Yeah, absolutely. So like you mentioned, Rett syndrome, it's a, it's a rare uh, genetic neurological uh, and developmental disorder that affects, um, you know, the way the brain develops, causing usually progressive loss of motor skills and, and speech. Um, and like you also mentioned, it primarily affects girls because it's a genetic disorder in the, um, in the sex chromosomes. Um, so most babies with, with red seem to develop normally for the first, you know, six to eight months, uh, and then they lose skills, uh, skills uh, they pre previously had, such as the ability to crawl, walk, communicate, or, or use their, their hands. So over time, children with red have increasing problems with the use of muscles that control movement, you know, coordination and communication. Um, and it also can cause seizures and intellectual disability. So, um, you know, they have abnormal hand movements such as repetitive throbbing or, or clapping uh, and replace purposeful uh, hand use. So there are no cures, like you mentioned, but there are potential uh, treatments. And when I was in, in graduate school doing my thesis, 
my laboratory discovered this compound, this molecule uh, that uh, we named P7C3. Uh, and that compound we knew was able to protect the cells of the brain or neurons uh, from dying. Um, and that's a very, very important discovery because as you may know, all neurodegenerative disorders are at the end of the day, end up with cells dying. So if we have a compound that can um, you know, help with that or prevent cell death, then that will be a breakthrough. And during my PhD, I was tasked to test this compound in different models and one of them, uh, animal models, and one of them was the red syndrome mouse model, uh, which we had you know, genetically modified. Other groups have done that and I had it in the lab and I would then uh, inject with uh, this P7C3 every day uh, and then see if the brain was developing correctly and what, what, what were the things that we could catch in the brain. And importantly, we found that we were able to uh, alleviate many of the, of the culprits of, of red syndrome. One of them is cell death that happens in the brain as they develop um, using this compound. Uh, and also we found that their uh, anxiety-like behaviors, which is prevalent in these mouse models using different behavioral assays, also became better with the treatment of, of this compound. So it was very, very exciting. And, and we published it a few years ago. Uh, and we hope you know, to then go into uh, higher animal models like monkeys and, and humans to try to see if this is a, a, a treatment that could be used for, for red and other neurodegenerative disorders. Wow, that's so exciting. I can only imagine how excited you were as, you know, day after day, um, you're, you're monitoring the mice and you're kind of monitoring their cells and seeing that, okay, like something is really happening and that they're sustaining um, these gains over time. I can only imagine <laughs> um, how great that must have uh, felt. Yeah, yeah, especially, you know, coming from Puerto Rico, I, I was reading about the discovery of of this molecule P7C3, and I got so so excited. And I started talking with the um, researcher that ultimately became my supervisor as a PhD thesis, and I was so excited to do that. And then we also did it with other models like Parkinson's disease, which had really really good uh, promise. Uh, so yeah, I was super excited every day to go to the lab, and you know uh, it was. It was very time consuming and it was a lot of hard work, but at the end of the day, we found out something that could be a hope for these uh, you know, parents and also their patients uh, with this disorder. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned that P7C3 um, also has maybe promise promising outcomes for other types of degeneration like Parkinson's. So how did you kind of figure out that this might be applicable to other disorders as well? Yeah, so that was my, my, my thesis. And, and what we hypothesized at the time was like, okay, so let's, we have a compound that we know protects cells from dying. So what are the disorders or models that we could use to kind of prove that this is true? in a disease state, because one thing is to protect the cell from dying that would normally die, and that's how the compound was discovered initially. But then what happens when you have a toxicity, you know, when the environment is toxic and you're about to die, is this compound potent enough uh, to really protect? 
And that's when we turn to, you know, the one of the first models was Parkinson, because in Parkinson, um, we could model it by injecting toxins in the brain in specific regions that control motor movement. And therefore, uh, we have a window because we know when we inject it to then treat it with, you know, in this case, P7C3, but whatever you want, and then see if it's sufficient to, to protect. And that's how we did it. We injected a toxin uh, directly in the brain of, of mice and rats. Uh, and then we uh, also injected the animals uh, systemically. So it's like you're taking a pill with the P7C3 and see if it was sufficient to, to um, protect against death in, in that specific brain region that it's called substantia nigra in the brain, which also happens to be in humans and the one area that controls um, voluntary movement. And what we found was astonishing at the time, which is like when we compare those animals that we injected with P7C3 with you know, their saline controls that had no drugs, um, we saw many, many more cells in that area uh, after you know, the toxin have being um, implicated in there. So when we saw that, we were like, oh my God, this is really, really good. But protecting cells from dying is not the same as functional protection, meaning that the cell could be there, but it may be sick or it could not be doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is like control movement. So we also did behavioral paradigms where we had you know, the rats moving um, and when they um, are injected with a the toxin, they start like running around um, in circles when you uh, inject them with another drug called amphetamine, uh, they become very hyperactive and they start like switching. It, it is like very, very uh, incredible to see those videos because they start running around a cage. Um, but then the animals that were injected with P7C3 were able to not, to not do that. So behave normally, they do become hyperactive, but they don't start twitching like that. Uh, we also did it in other models like uh, worms. <laughs> Incredibly, worms also have the same type of neurons as humans, uh, some of them. Um, and these type of neurons is, are called dopaminergic. And again, they control kind of movement. So in worms, um, we also put the toxin to kill those neurons and also the drug to protect them. And we saw that their, their cells were protected and also their behavior of moving, of crawling also was protected. So all in all, you know, we saw that, that not only working in worms, but also mice, but also rats, which is like one of our dreams, uh, not only, you know, work in one animal model, but in multiple to make sure that it's gonna also translate at the end of the day to humans. Mm, yes, I did not. First, I'm amazed just in general, overall, because this is just such great news, right? And I know that there's still more development that needs to happen, but still, this is really good news. Um, but also the worms. <laughs> I never thought about worms in their neurons <laughs> and how they might be similar yeah. to ours. Um, so that just kind of threw me off. Um, but I, I love to see the little worms crawling. So I'm glad to hear that the models yeah, yeah. also held up with the worms. Now thinking about, again, I know that there's several more, you know, steps that would have to continue um, for this research before, you know, possibly seeing if it's treatment um, that would work in humans as well. But I'm wondering kind of where are you in that research? Are you continuing with this particular line around the um, P7C3 molecule and kind of what might be the next steps? Yeah. 
So I'm, I'm, I move on to my postdoc at MIT and I'm not working with PCNC3 anymore, but I'm doing something that would at the end of the day come back to you know, developing new treatments. And the reason why I move a little bit is because one of the main characteristics of the brain is that it communicates not only chemically, but also electrically. And when I was in grad school, I realized that I didn't understand very well how, you know, neurons communicated electrically. So I really wanted to get gain, you know, more knowledge on that area. And the purpose of that is to, when I have my own lab in the future and I have, you know, my students and my postdocs, we can have a research program that could look at the um, disorders at different levels, electrically, chemically, pharmacologically, meaning creating new drugs or developing new drugs, and then at the end of the day, bring it to, to the patient. Because uh, many of these disorders like Alzheimer's disease uh, and including Parkinson's, you can see very early on changes in the brain that are not observed you know, behaviorally. So by the time that you see a patient of Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, forgetting stuff, um, Typically, there's a lot of accumulation of pathology or bad things happening in the brain, but you don't realize because the brain is very, very good at um, not showing that until the end. Mm -hmm. So we need to find ways to detect um, these disorders very early on. You know, we are doing a very good job with autism, for example, but with Alzheimer's, we don't have that. And Parkinson, we're getting even a little bit better, but not, not great. So electrically the brain communicates sending signals and those signals become damaged very early on in disorders. And I wanted to, in my lab, use electrophysiology, which is the field that study electricity in the brain to detect disorders very early on. So I can then treat them as soon as I can with, the, with P7C3, for example, or other uh, new treatments. Because one of the things that you know, frustrated me when I was in grad school was this idea of like, I had to have genetic animals or I had to inject the toxin. But what happened if I don't know if an animal is okay or not, can I detect it without genetics and, and without me putting a toxin? And one of the ways to do that is electrophysiology. So now I do experiments where I measure the electrical activity of animal uh, models, in, including mice, to look at the memory and how, how learning and memory happens in the brain of a, of a mouse to then use those rules of learning when they disrupt, then I can treat um, with specific drugs that uh, enhance that, that process um, to come back and then work with the things that I, we, we've talked about earlier. Mm. I am so happy that you brought that up because as a person who, you know, just a lay person who doesn't know, <laughs> um, you know, all this information, right, about the brain, I think, of course, with the brain, there would be multiple layers or levels that we have to kind of um, understand what's happening, but also intervene at different stages. Um, so that definitely makes sense. So I love that you're getting kind of this very comprehensive approach to how might mm -hmm. we um, again, not just treat kind of the symptoms or after we, you know, see some of these um, symptoms, but how can we kind of from the beginning or in the earliest stages make some sort of in intervention? Um, so I love that. Uh, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Hector 
de Jesus Cortez, and we're talking all about the brain, um, and in particular, neuropsychiatric disorders and possible interventions. Now, in the first segment or before the break, um, Hector, you gave us a lot of really great information around some of the um, early work that you've done around um, P7C3 molecule and how it might aid in kind of our treatment of um, neuro neurological disorders or neurodegenerative disorders. And I'm also thinking about um, some of your I guess, earlier work as well. Again, thinking about um, some different type of um, neurological or neuropsychiatric disorders. And I'm thinking about your research on um, around, excuse me, around maybe schizophrenia, um, bipolar, bipolar disorder, and thinking um, in particular around, and then you can tell me if I'm saying this wrong, around the um, CAV 1.2 um, interventions mm -hmm. um, that you did. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so CAV 1.2, it's a um, receptor that it's found in neurons. So again, going back for all your listeners, uh, you know, neurons are the cells of the brain that communicate electrically and also chemically. And in, in the, re the way they communicate is by having these receptors that are just like little channels in the, in the neurons that allow for ions to go in and out. Um, and then those ions create enough energy for things to move around. And when you move things around, that's how uh, neurons communicate. So in particular, I study a type of receptor in the brain called CAV 1.2. It's an L-type calcium channel. So it allows ions of calcium to get inside of the cell. And they are very, very important for communication. Again, calcium um, is a positive ion and positive ions getting inside of the cell are super important for communication. So there's this um, mutation that makes this, this uh, channel doesn't work correctly. So basically, we were trying to understand what happens when this channel is not working correctly, which are found in um, some patients with autism spectrum disorders. So, um, you know, the hypothesis is, okay, let's study this channel. Um, the idea is that the physiology of the channel is going to be not working correctly, but in my case, I was tasked to see if having this mutation in this channel causes cell death. So again, going back to my earlier work of neurodegeneration or cell death, I wanted to see if, if this mutation causes that. And at the end of the day, that's what happened. Um, in, in a particular brain region called the hippocampus, which is very, very important for learning and memory, we found that um, well, other people have found that you have um, stem cells there that create new cells every day. So in the brain, different than in your skin and other organs who can regenerate normally, the brain has specific hubs that it can regenerate, but not everywhere. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have a, you know, a car accident or something, and, and you have a, a problem in one part of the brain cells are made somewhere else and they have to migrate there. Um, so it takes some time. So those hubs create new cells every day. And what we found is that the rate of making those cells is the same, but then in animals with the CAP 1.2 mutation versus non-wild type animals, but then they die faster. 
in with if you have the mutation. You know, by dying faster, what happens is, of course, then you don't have enough um, cells to replace others or to have normal development, and that causes um, anxiety-like behaviors in this particular model of, of a mouse model of uh, autism spectrum disorders. So what we did is uh, going back to P7C3 is, uh, okay, we saw this, this uh, phenotype, you know, this um, thing that happened in the brain, let's see if we can stop it. So we started injecting P7C3 very early on, and we found that we were in fact able to protect those neurons from dying uh, faster. And also uh, the anxiety-like behaviors um, went away uh, or got alleviated basically. Um, so that, that was very, very exciting as well because um, for these type of disorders also there's, uh, they are in children and you know, the type of anxiety uh, pills that we have are not very safe for, ch for children. Mm. You know, they can change the brain development. So having a new way of treatment of anxiety um, for children that have autism is very, very important for the field. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because I'm thinking kind of what you said earlier, you know, if we're just treating the symptoms and then depending upon how we're treating those symptoms, it may actually lead to further complications later on in life. So if we can kind of understand maybe again, the root causes or some of those underlying mechanisms, then we can have better interventions that don't possibly lead to further negative kind of consequences um, in the future. So this is very exciting. Um, now, I know you mentioned that you are kind of taking um, a different uh, approach to some of your current research. And I'm wondering if there are any projects that you're currently working on that you can kind of share with us um, what you're working on and maybe even any new exciting findings that you've had so far. Yeah, so um, like I mentioned before, I, I'm studying now the rules of, of um, electricity in the brain of, of animals. And that field, uh, it's called electrophysiology and synaptic plasticity, which is what I study, means the capacity of the, of the neurons to strengthen or loosen uh, or weaken connections in the brain. So you can think about it as a yin-yang, you know, you, you are not going to remember everything. Uh, you, your brain has to conserve energy. So there's some memories that are going to become really good, uh, especially if you practice them a lot. That's why you study a lot for exams and things like that. Uh, but there are some that the brain are just going to, you know, uh, weekend and then turn over. So those rules of how that happened usually happen at the, uh, the neuronal level with you know, electrical properties that, that the neurons that connect really well to each other electrically, meaning like when I when this one wanna connect to the other one, send signals and the other one responds really, really good. It's like when you have a neighbor and you have it really, really close, you, you hear everything. <laughs> but if this is a little bit further, you're not going to hear it that well. So to create good connections, you have to have proximity, like um, structural pro proximity, but also the biochemical or the, or the things, the proteins are inside of the, of the neurons have to be well organized. So what I'm doing is I'm implanting electrodes in the visual cortex of, of uh, mice. So the visual cortex is found in the back of the brain in what is called the occipital lobe. Um, 
And what I, what I do is I do a neurosurgery where I implant this tiny wire in the, in the visual cortex. So I can have access to the activity of the eyes. So mm-hmm. it's a visual cortex. It processes all the activity that we receive from the eyes or the stimulus that we receive from the eyes. And then after the surgery is done and the animal have recovered, I can show him uh, or the animal a movie or something in a screen and I can have access to the activity in the brain. So now I have that activity, but how do I know that the animal is learning something? So to understand the rules of learning, what I do is I show a specific pattern in a monitor Mm -hmm. and then I show it and I have a specific um, output or signal that I get. And then I come the next day and I show the exact same um, pattern and I see the activity. And then I come multiple days later and I can do that. And I can do it to either eye. I can do it with both eyes, or I can do it with one eye. Um, and then what I, what the lab has found in the past, not me, was that when you keep showing a familiar stimuli, so something that he has seen before, the activity grows larger every day mm. until it plateaus. So depending on the age of the animal, if it's super young, it learns super fast. <laughs> like humans and then if it's an older animal it learns it a little bit slower but we all learn mm-hmm. now at the end of the experiment we also introduce a novel stimuli so we change the pattern and what we see is that the activity goes down to what it was in the in the first day so the first day the the, the pattern was a novel one a new one uh, so it learned specifically that pattern that you have uh, created and then what I'm studying is what's happening in the brain at the, at the molecular level, at the electrophysiological level, at different levels that I have studied uh, in the past to um, understand how that grows larger, why is it that it's specific to, to, that, um, to that angle or that pattern. And we can use also drugs to stimulate that to go one way or the other. So in particular, there's another experiment that I, I do that uh, resembles a disorder of the brain called uh, amblyopia or commonly known as lazy eye. Mm-hmm. So you've seen these little kids with a little patch in one of their eyes. Yeah. And that's because usually uh, in development, their eyes are not um, aligned correctly or they have a cataract or there are different ways where the eyes, both eyes are not working properly. If it's catched earlier by an ophthalmologist or your pediatrician, they can do a surgery and put the eyes, you know, align them. But since, you know, it grew um, that it was not correctly aligned, what happens is that the brain created a really good connection with one eye, but not the other. So the one eye becomes lazy and the other one is is what we call the fellow eye or the good eye. So what we can do is um, in, in, in humans, it's patch or close basically the good eye or the fellow eye to induce plasticity or strengthening of the connections to the brain to, of, the, of the amblyopic eye. Mm. Uh, and that works really, really nice uh, if you catch it earlier before the 11 years old, but it doesn't work really that well when, when you grow older or if there's no compliance, if the you know, kids get bullied at school or something and doesn't wear the patch then it doesn't work really well. So we can do that in animals. We can close the eye of an animal for a specific period of time and cause amblyopia. So if I take a very young animal, uh, 26 years 
26 days old and I close one eye for a week or two weeks or three weeks, depending on the experiment, when I open it, what I found is that the connections to the brain become weakened. Mm -hmm. So the previous example, we were getting better activity with familiarity. Now we're getting less activity because we closed it and the brain is like, I don't need this connection. I'm getting a lot of noise, you know, because through the parpat, you do get some ions uh, uh, through the eyelid, but you're not getting enough. So the information is not very good for the brain. It weakens those connections. And then what I'm trying to do is come up with treatments to kind of reboot or bring back um, those connections back to normal because we know that we can do that. And in the lab, a particular uh, postdoc before me found that if you use a toxin called tetrodotoxin or TTX, which is found in pufferfish, <laughs> um, you can essentially make the um, mouse blind for a little bit of time. So you inject it in both eyes or the good eye. Um, and that, like imagine your computer when it's giving you a little bit of problem, you restart it. So you turn it off and back on, it's the same thing. So now by using uh, this toxin, the system has to shut down for a little bit. And when it comes back on, now, even though this one didn't receive a lot of connection because it's amblyopic, it has the capacity and the opportunity to go back to what it was before um, in the system. So what I'm trying to do is to understand why that happens at the molecular level. What are the biochemistry? What are those channels that I talked about earlier that are important to, to you know, change calcium uh, and that we then can use other compounds not we don't have to make you blind but we can use the <laughs> same rules of the of the blindness to reboot the system and make it better so those are the two you know things that i'm doing in the lab um, right now and i have really good success with a few of them i cannot talk about the specific compounds but i do want to say that there's uh, really really interesting things happening in the lab that that we're hopefully wanting to publish this year Wow, that is so exciting. I mean, I'm just really blown away by all of it. Um, and just thinking about one, you know, how amazing is our brain to be able to make, you know, kind of all these choices and modifications in order for us to kind of work or for the brain to work most optimally, right? And I think that's just so cool. But the other promising, of course, the promising thing about your research is that when we're thinking about conditions like the lazy eye or, or just other um, kind of connections in our brain, there's ways for us to kind of get rewired um, so that we can have kind of the most um, optimal, I guess, um, output or functioning in, in our body. So that's really, really exciting. I think it gives me a lot of hope too, because we often think just kind of in general, like, oh, this is just how I am, or this is just how I think, or this is just, you know, whatever these kind of patterns and routines are that we've created in our, in our brains, but there's always ways for us to kind of um, reroute <laughs> um, so that we can maybe yeah. see clearly or think clearly. Um, and so that I think is something to be hopeful for. So I have to be on the lookout for maybe some exciting findings and new breakthroughs that you and your have um have this year that's great no absolutely and, and like you mentioned with that 
give us a lot of hope and, and also it tells you a little bit of the complexity of the brain and why we're a little bit behind uh, from other organs, you know, from developing drugs. It's just like we're working with so many different levels of complexity that it makes it really, really hard because, you know, you can fix the, the electrical part, but then there's the biochemical part. You can feel uh, the behavior, but then there's other, the genetics are there. Um, but what we're really understanding is like many of the things of the brain, like in the past, you know, you would thought like, oh, depression is something of the, you know, psychology related, nothing to do with the brain. The person is just weaker or something. Now we're understanding that there's so many chemicals in the brain, so many imbalances that in reality, it is a disorder. And it's something that needs to be treated with that, uh, with the same respect than other disorder, exactly the same as Alzheimer's, Parkinson, because we need to understand it really well. And, you know, if it needs, uh, treatment, pharmacological treatment, use it, and also, you know, therapy and the other tools that we, uh, the, you know, psychologists have developed. So it, it has opened up a lot of our minds to understand the complexity and to be really empathetic with a lot of the different disorders that in the past were not that um, prevalent. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm so glad that you mentioned that, especially giving that example of depression, because I think is it has been very stigmatized. And like you said, um, some at some points in time, or even some folks might think, oh, you know, you can just feel your way out of it. Or, or you know, <laughs> like, if you just uh, maybe power of positive thinking that it could be okay. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, no, when we're thinking about the brain, it is so complex, there are multiple different um, levels and things happening happening that are impacting something like depression. Um, and like you said, to be able to treat it with the respect it deserves, but also with the empathy um, that people deserve as we're thinking about mm -hmm. um, disorders. Um, and again, treatment being, you know, maybe a couple steps behind, right? Because the brain is so complex. Yeah, no, absolutely. But one thing that we do know that help everything in the brain um, it's, you know, the circulation. So the, the one thing that we have in the brain, it's the same like other organs. We have blood that it's supplying the brain with a lot of oxygen. And because the brain is one of the highest consuming energy places in the whole body. So having a great nutrition, exercising, you know, and, and trying to minimize stress are things that we can do every single day, choices that we can do every single day to minimize the impact later on of, of these disorders. Because you know the genetics, you cannot change. But what we have known um, now, it's like genetics are just a script. Um, what happens is who's gonna read the script? It's gonna be you know Jennifer Lopez or, or Brad Pitt or someone that it's just a bad person. So you choose who um, uh, is going to read the script and, and the decisions that we make every single day with, with those things that I mentioned are crucial and are things that we all can do right now. Uh, and, and it's going to make our lives, our researchers' lives much easier because then we're going to, there, there's some genetics that you cannot beat. You know, for example, my wife specifically studies a, a family in Colombia that has a mutation that predisposes patients 99.9% .9 to have Alzheimer's. Wow. So that's it. You know, they cannot change anything in their diet or anything. So those are, you know, we have to study those. But the majority of Alzheimer's patients are not like that. They don't have this, that mutation. 
you know, the what we call familial Alzheimer's are um, less than 10% in the world. So the others are a combination of many of our choices that are done every day and things that we don't understand in the genetics and other stuff. So there's a hope on that side as well. If we understand the power of nutrition, exercise, and, and stress, those things are really, really important that, that people should take care uh, every single day. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I love what you said that the genetics are just a script, right? And we get some input on, on who's going to read, <laughs> read the script. <laughs> so yeah, that yeah. is great news. Uh, well, let's take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Hector de Jesus Cortez. Uh, we've been talking about neuropsychiatric disorders, um, possible interventions, and a lot of the great research that he is doing. And, you know, one thing that I haven't um, gotten to ask you yet is how did you become interested in this line of research? What led you kind of down this road? Oh, wow. This is a great question. Well, um, growing up, I really wanted to become a baseball player. And, you know, growing up in, in Puerto Rico, you know, we, I, I just loved uh, baseball. Um, and it wasn't until high school that I had to do a science fair. And uh, my, my dad at the time was um, drinking a, an extract from a plant called uh, Cundia Mormodica Charantia, scientific name. And he would like boil the plant and take the extracts for his type two diabetes. And I always wonder, I was very, very curious of what is it in that extract that make, you know, the sugar levels go down um, mm. instead of a pill. And I did a science fair to uh, where I went to a lab, a chemistry lab to separate the ingredients of that plant and then test them individually to see if one of them was the active one or was the combination of all of them. And that project actually made me realize that I love going to the lab, that I love, uh, you know, working with different experiments, talking with, with other researchers, doing the literature review. Um, and it's just, I just got hooked. So I, at the same time, got injured in my triceps, so I couldn't play baseball anymore. And I had to decide what to do. So I went to to do my bachelor's degree in the University of Puerto Rico in molecular and cell biology. And the idea was to use, you know, plant medicines for humans in the future. Um, but then I, I, I had uh, the opportunity to be in a neuroscience lab and I just got hooked again, but more specifically towards the brain because I realized what we've been talking, like there's not a lot of that is known uh, about the brain. All of these disorders are devastating, not only for the patient, but for the caregivers, the family. We all know people that have them. And yet there's not much we can do. And I was like, I wanna be part of the solution. I, I, I applied some of the discipline and the hard work that it's found in, in sports. <laughs> and, and the one that I wanted, you know, I wanted to become an MLB player. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go all in on this. And, uh, and I was really, really successful in that lab. Uh, at the time, we were studying uh, telepathies, which is a family that Alzheimer's is part of at the, at the mouse model. And then I did grad school in UT Southwestern Dallas, Texas with a psychiatrist who introduced me to T7C3 that I have talked about earlier. 
And then now I'm at uh, Mark Bear's lab at MIT where I'm trying to, you know, round up my career so I can open up my lab and, and finish what I started, which is um, creating new treatments for patients. But now instead of plants, I want to do it with whatever is necessary. If it's a plant, that's fine. If it's a drug, that's fine. And if it's digital therapeutics, which is something that it's now used a lot, which is the power of like VR, for example, visual reality. You can use the eyes and put specific stimuli, like I mentioned for my mice, and change the plasticity or the strengthening of the brain. So whatever is necessary to treat uh, patients with neurodegenerative disorders. Wow. Okay. So there's so much there. Well, first, again, I just love that you are just expanding your toolkit, right? So that you will actually be able to provide kind of the best treatment, most effective or comprehensive treatment possible versus just kind of looking at these disorders from one one way. Um, So that's awesome. Um, But then I'm I'm really blown away by, you're like, oh, so I was in high school and I just went to this lab and I'm running all these tests on this plant to see which, you know, part of the chemical compound is really the the healing properties, right? Or regulating the sugar. And I'm like, wow, that's so awesome to be able to to do that in high school. Because again, it sounds very complicated to me um, Mm -hmm. and, and very like, wow, this is, like next level. This is so awesome. So first, let me ask you, were you able to figure out what, I guess, component of the plant that was um, actually contributing to regulating the sugar, blood sugar? So yes, but it wasn't a particular ingredient. It was the combination of all of them. So it was a synergistic um, properties of all of them combined together were able to have the hypoglycemic effect, which is, you know, regulating uh, sugar levels. And, and then we won a prize uh, of the science fair in Puerto Rico. And, and it was just an amazing experience. Yeah. That's so cool. And I'm wondering, um, how did your dad feel about kind of your interest in science and also kind of, I guess, your interest in particularly what he was doing, right? Every day having to, you know, regulate his blood sugar. It's a, uh... I think to this day, my parents are like, we didn't even know you were going to turn this way. You know, like parents would be like, yeah, you're a genius. You're very intelligent. But I, to be honest with you, wasn't uh, the best student all the time uh, academically. I do. I did have good grades, but they were not, you know, I wasn't at the top of my class, always wanting to play baseball or go out and, and party with my friends. So they never thought that I was going to become a scientist and they're not scientists either. But now they're like, oh, my God, that little experiment that you did that time that we had to take you every. So I, I would go to the lab every afternoon after school. I would go to this lab and spend, you know, two or three hours there every single day. So they had to take me. I didn't have a car. So, you know, they're now realizing that that little, you know, effort or a lot of effort at the time uh, <laughs> turned out to to be life changing for me. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is, that's so cool, though. That is such a great kind of introduction um, and and story, right? Foundation to your interest. That is really cool. And um, I also was really, really liked how you made that correlation between the discipline that you had for baseball and using kind of those same strategies as you're thinking about, okay, well now I'm interested in, in this and how can I apply that same approach to this, you know, program of study? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, I believe in translatable skills and something that we now have because of internet and, and the power of, you know, globalization is we have access to whatever we want. Um, so you don't have to become particularly good at something. I, I became really good at solving problems that, you know, getting super interested in something and going really deep and, and solving it. So I, I always encourage my mentees to, you know, find their passion, but also be open-minded to things that they didn't even know that could be possible and try it and see if they like it. Yes, yes. And I'm also thinking about, you know, the teachers that you had and that access, right, being able to go to a lab in high school and run these experiments and, you know, having, um, you know, a teacher who could, you know, assist you um, and also having the, the materials, right, the actual lab itself. And I'm wondering how much is that ex early experience connected to the pre-college program that you're a director of? Yeah, it's uh, absolutely everything, because I have realized that when you go to college, you know, you, you go and, and you start your career, but how do you know what you like? You know, in, in high school, at least in Puerto Rico, my experience is that you get the same classes in most schools, but you don't realize what research is all about, and you don't understand what a lab environment is. And in my opinion, that early experience that I had created such an impact in me. And I wanna you know, give that to other students. So my wife and I um, are the founders and co-directors of what you mentioned, it's called the Sagrado MIT Neuroscience Pre-College Program. And the idea is like you mentioned, giving resources at a very early age when they're in ninth, 10th or 11th grade when they don't know what they want uh, most of the time mm -hmm. uh, and just exposing them to to what STEM it's all about specifically the research part of STEM because they, they're taking classes in science um, and also you know neuroscience neuroscience is because we are both neuroscientists and um, we focused it on that uh, for the uh, this is going to be the third year but um, the idea is to show these students with seminars and, um, and panels, so career development panels, what is possible for them in the future. You know, I didn't know that what was a PhD when I was in high school. I didn't even know when I was the first two years of, of, of college. So it wasn't until I got in a lab and I realized that. So learning that very early on, it's, I think, super helpful. Just have it in your mirror. You know, what is science communication? What is science policy? What are the different routes that you can go? Because nowadays you go to college and it's not like before, like that would definitely give you a job. In biology, it's not like that anymore. In, in reality, there's not many things that you can do with a biology degree. Mm -hmm. um, you have to probably go to grad school for other things to, to become spe uh, specialized. So knowing that from the get-go, either would tell you, okay, I should go that route or not go that route if you don't feel that's something you want to do. And, you know, exposure is super important. Secondly, like you mentioned, if you don't have the resources, it's almost impossible. So this program, since it's free, it could reach everyone in Puerto Rico uh, for now. So in the first year, we had more than 500 applications um, and from all over the island, mm -hmm. uh, which is really, really good because they're, they're like, anywhere, you know, the, the, the uh, city, uh, the capital is San Juan, and that's where the best schools are and like the best resources for the most part. Uh, so we were able to capture a lot of students that were like, we didn't even know this existed. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and thirdly, there's a lot of things about college that people don't know. Like my, my own sister, for example, didn't know that, you know, if you go to places like MIT and Harvard, there's a lot of uh, financial aid. So the first thing parents think when, when going to college for their kids is like, it's going to be too expensive. Am I going to be able to pay for it? That's mm -hmm. it. But in reality, if you don't have a lot of money, there, these are need-based places that most of the time have give you fellowships or grants that allow you to study. But what you get out of it, you know, if you have a degree from these prestigious universities, it's a very, very good head start in life that would, you know, be really good for you. So it's just exposing these kids to things that uh, in reality, when they get exposed in college, it could be too late or it could be something that they're like, no, I'm not going to do that. I already have a degree in this or that. So before they have all that, expose them, uh, give them resources. And at the end, we also connect them with a mentor um, that would give them uh, every month, would meet with them to see what they want to do, how they can help. And they're at the master's, PhD or professor level um, to give continuity to these type of programs. Because, you know, if you're in a school with no resources, you go through this experience, you go back and then you don't have resources anymore, that's it. But by, by giving them continuation with these mentors, we're able to uh, give them, you know, the social mobility that we want to try to create uh, with this type of program. Wow, that is so awesome. I mean, you know, everything you said, I think is, is so important, you know, early exposure um, to this type of field for students, but also those kind of networks of support as folks are navigating um, some of these, you know, educational systems that might seem very daunting. Um, so knowing, again, bring that hope back in that, hey, this is something that you're good at, that there's support for, also that you don't have to, you know, be so stressed about the cost, right? Because, you know, people, we don't know what we don't know. So, so mm -hmm. even just having that exposure, I think is, is extremely helpful. Um, well, Dr. De Jesus Cortez, it has been such a pleasure to have you here with us, with us this morning. I've learned so much. And again, like I said, I'm looking forward to seeing, um, you know, research that you and your lab have, you know, coming out um, in this area as well. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Sana, for, for the invitation. And, and please, for all your listeners, you can email me at any time to, you know, if you want me to explain something further, want me to understand more about what I do, or if you're in the MIT area and want to just, you know, grab coffee, <laughs> uh, like this podcast, um, we could also do that. So my email is hdejesus, uh, D-E-J-E-S-U-S, at mit.edu. So please uh, feel free to contact me anytime. I'm, I'm happy to talk about this further. And really, really happy that you invited me. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you again to Dr. Hector de Jesus Cortez. What an enlightening conversation. I learned so much. And uh, most of all, I'm just really hopeful um, for what we might see in the future as far as treatments for these different um, neurodegenerative disorders and neuropsychiatric disorders. Um, so that is very much exciting news. And just to reiterate, if you want to get in touch with Dr. de Jesus Cortez. Um, he offered his email. Um, so you can feel free to email him your questions. Um, and his email I'll include in the show notes as well. 
So for today's positive note, I just want to reiterate something that Dr. De Jesus Cortez said, which is genetics are just a script. But who is going to read that script? And I love that because sometimes I think we can feel like, you know, maybe we know something about our genetic history or genetic disposition, um, but it's just a script. And we do have some input into that ourselves. So thinking about nutrition, thinking about exercise, and thinking about ways that we can um, lower that negative stress. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on 91.7 FM WYXR every Monday morning. I'm here having great conversations with researchers and experts from across the country. So I hope you will join me again. If you missed the earlier parts of this episode, don't worry. You can hear the replay on WYXR.org on the show page for Let's Grab Coffee. Or you could always subscribe in the podcast format on your favorite podcast stream app. I cannot wait until you and I get to be back here together next Monday.